You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. On today's episode, we talk to Ralph Keller, a Marxist humanist scholar, about the rise of the far right in Europe. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by Marxist Humanist Initiative, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a few moments, we'll begin our main segment discussing the rise of the far right in Europe with uh, Ralph Keller. But first, as we do in every episode, we will begin with a discussion of some current events. We are recording this current event section on Monday, July 27th. We're going to be talking about Trump's sending of federal law enforcement officers to Portland and his threat to send these stormtroopers elsewhere in the U.S. against the wish of state and local governments. There has been widespread reporting, of course, of all sorts of abuses of power by these officers. They appear to be accountable to nobody and no laws. They don't wear identification. They kidnap people off the streets. There's ample documentation of them using very violent tactics against peaceful protesters. And, and Trump wants to do more of this, send them to more cities. And so the crisis of democracy in the U.S., the rise of fascism, has reached a new level, it seems. There are continuing protests against police brutality and against the, the treatment of, of demonstrators in, in the protests against police brutality. And Trump has decided to have a massive display of excessive force. And that's why he's sending you know his special police to Portland and threatening to do so elsewhere. In the past few weeks, we've seen some really disturbing and unforgettable images. Things like uh, protesters being scooped off the street and thrown into unmarked vans and whisked away. To who knows where, um, the mayor of Portland being tear gassed by you know the, these officers, and a lot of people are describing this as clearly fascistic tactics. Yeah, and it's not it's not just like the far left that's saying this, like me, like you. Uh, a couple days ago, I heard Lawrence Tribe, who's a constitutional law professor at uh, Harvard, I believe, and he just said Trump is a monster. You know, so this is widely being denounced, and that's part of I think what what Trump is trying to do is to cleave the United States in two parts and to get everybody polarized on one side or the other. Yeah, and one of the things that's really striking is all the people who have freshly joined the protest movements that were already going on in the streets. You know, uh, the Black Lives Matter demonstrations have been joined by this influx of new participants who are um, outraged by the Trump's tactics. It's bringing out a broad swath of residents of Portland from like all parts of the political spectrum and all like parts of society right we've, we've got the wall of moms where people's mothers come out and and form a wall to protect them from being picked up and tear gassed and stuff and we've got the mayor who was tear gassed and trump was laughing about that uh and what didn't get a lot of uh, reporting was the wall of vets veterans came out and formed a wall so yeah i mean the supporters that they the, the protesters are getting a lot of support yeah, I was particularly struck by the participation of veterans in these demonstrations. That's not something you see every day in U.S. politics. Right, although it has a long history. I mean, during the Vietnam War, you had the Vietnam veterans against the war. They were a major organization. I think that even launched the political career of John Kerry. <laughs> 
going back even further, you've got the bonus marchers. I mean, it was a different kind of issue, but but during the Depression, you know, you had them basically marching in Washington. I, I believe they were marching in Washington against the economic conditions. I mean, there is, there is a long history of, of, of protest by, by veterans in this country. But yeah, I mean, typically veterans organizations are flag wavers and, and you know, so-called patriots and, and stuff like that. So some of the commentary we're hearing right now is just about the short-term political situation, why Trump has created this situation uh, to create this political theater to try to turn around his failing campaign. As many people have pointed out, he's being crushed by Biden in the polls right now. Um, voting actually starts very soon now with a lot of states having mail-in voting options. Within a few weeks, a lot of people will be starting to cast their ballots. So there's just a short amount of time for him to turn things around, and he's desperate to stay in power. Um, you know, if he loses the election, he might end up in jail, lose property, his family members might end up in jail. So he's scared, and he's lashing out like a crazy tyrant and like threatening to bring the whole boat down with him. Um, but then there's this larger social question of how we got to this point in this country of uh, shock troops being sent to U.S. cities, kidnapping people off the streets. That goes beyond just the immediate, uh, you know, political situation for Trump and is a broader question about, like, what has happened to American society and politics. Yes. I mean, Trump is trying to dig himself out of uh, a big hole to try to somehow win the election or steal the election in a little bit of better shape. But nobody that, that I can see thinks that this is a winning strategy. Everybody thinks it's a losing strategy because a significant segment of the American people decisively turned around on the question of, of racism in this country. A significant share of the white population, especially young people, you know, after the the murder of George Floyd and all of the protests about that. And now Trump is like tripling, quadrupling down. This is not a way of getting a majority of the people behind him. The, the only thing it could possibly be is to rile up his base in order to gin up the turnout among his base or to provoke such a re reaction, counter-violence, etc., among the protesters that he's th then able to exploit that. Uh, and he's been trying that with his suburban strategy, warning people about what's going to be happening to their suburbs. I, I, but I don't think it's going to fly. But yeah, I, I agree with you that the real, the real issue is how do we get to this point? How is he able to be doing this at all? That is the real issue. You know, MHI, Marxist Humanist Initiative, warned about the extraordinary dangers of Trump and Trumpism before his election. We used very strong language and referred to him as a proto-fascist. And, you know, a lot of people gave us grief for that and said we were being alarmist and uh, the real enemy was the neoliberals and Hillary Clinton. And then after Trump's election, I remember being on a panel at the Left Forum in 2017 where I delivered a paper criticizing Chris Coutrone of the Platypus Society for him being a Trump supporter and trying to normalize Trump. And, uh, you know, I made explicit parallels to 20th century fascism that, and during that paper. And, uh, you know, people laughed at us and said we were being alarmist and Trump wasn't really that big a deal. Um, and, and all along the way, there's been this reluctance on the left to talking about the clear historical parallels between the rise of Trumpism and 20th century fascism. And now we're in this situation where Trump has no checks on his power at all. He has his own extrajudicial security force for him to use to terrorize U.S. citizens outside of the rule of law. He has set up concentration camps for immigrants. 
He says he will not respect the outcome of the November election. You know, I'd like all those people to tell me now that I still can't use the word fascist. And they should not only tell us that, they should tell us that on this program. Come on and try to make a case that what we're looking at is just some sort of progressive populism and not either fascism or proto-fascism, okay? I mean, basically, ba basically, I think we have to say, look, we were right, you were wrong. Grapple with your underlying ideology that got you to the place where you diverted, deflected, ignored all of the warning signs, enabled this to happen, normalized it, and helped bring us to this point. I mean, I think talking about the parallels between the rise of the Trump presidency and the rise of 20th century fascism is very useful. I mean, you know, just like the rise of fascism in the 20th century and here in the U.S., we had failures at every level to present a check on the powers of the presidency. And there are all these institutions and people who thought they could benefit by aligning themselves with Trump and thought they could use Trump to advance their own interests. I mean, they, they just got swallowed up by the juggernaut of Trumpism. And now this deployment of Trump's own private Gestapo type forces that can operate outside of normal policing agencies. And they have this sort of quasi paramilitary function. I mean, we should acknowledge that ICE has already, already been performing this function for Trump. It's already been kidnapping undocumented immigrants off the streets for years now. And surprise, surprise, now we're learning what any scholar of fascism would tell you, that if you don't put a check on that sort of power, what happens is it eventually gets extended to uh, be able to abuse and terrorize a lot more people. Now he has his own you know, private security force that can operate outside the rule of law. I mean, you know, the Nazis set up their own uh, police force when they took over, too, for a reason. They wanted to be able to operate outside of the rule of law. And even though they captured political power, they still uh, were constrained by laws. And so they set up their own policing agencies so they could uh, operate with, with more impunity. Right. Trump is, is able basically to do what he wants because whatever justice system there is, is really under his thumb now. He's got a Department of Justice, so-called, that is his personal protection force run by Bill Barr, who thinks the president should basically have the powers of a king. And the, Trump and the Republican Senate have been able to push in a lot of federal judges who just ignore the law, and it goes up to the Supreme Court in many cases as well. And the Republicans for a very long time before then, I mean, they've been doing this for, for, for decades. So I mean, he, he's got basically the, the total politicization of the Department of Justice. It doesn't act in any way according to normal legal norms. The judges are doing everything to enshrine his power. But the other thing is, at, at the root of this, I think, is that there is a base for Trumpism. There is mass support for Trumpism. It's not majority support by any means, but still in all, with the protest for black lives, the uprising, with the, the total debacle around COVID-19, Trump's support in the U.S. is still right around 40%. And he's losing the election, according to the polls, big, but it's big, a 10% gap, an 8% gap, an 11% gap. It's not 20%. It's not 30%. So there is a mass base for fascism in this country. And there's nothing new about that. What I think is new is that for a long time, more traditional conservatives could 
send dog whistles to this base and keep it under control. And, you know, everything had the appearance of being about oh, religion or economic conservatism, you know, free market stuff or national security. But that wasn't really what was driving the base. And I think a lot of the conservatives didn't know that. You know, they thought they were in control, but they were, you know, being pulled by this pro-fascist base. Uh, and this is nothing new. The, the Frankfurt School people, Adorno and such, when they did their first studies, there was a survey that they did of, you know, the political leanings of the American populace. And it was right around, I don't remember the exact number, but right around a third of the, the U.S. population, you know, had decidedly authoritarian leanings. I read something about this the other day uh, in a piece that quoted Liliana Mason, who's a, a political scientist at the University of Maryland. And, I mean, what a lot of people have been saying is that the events in Portland are a reflection and an outgrowth of the polarization in this country. But Mason says, quote, I don't even think calling it polarization is sufficient. We are witnessing a crisis of democracy that is perfectly acceptable to a significant portion of the population as long as it hurts their enemies. So there is a large minority, a large minority of people in this country who are perfectly fine with these, this extrajudicial kidnapping and just harming of people, taking away their rights, trampling on their rights, if it's the other side. So this is what we face, and I think this is why Trump is able to get away with it. The Republicans are prostrate before it, you know, in Congress and the judiciary and, and so forth all follows because, well, they can't get a majority of people behind them. They're in a minority, but what they can do is to gin up enthusiasm among that minority, suppress the vote, and some combination of those two, they can try to stay in power, maybe indefinitely, until they can ratch up the fascism and take away our democratic rights entirely. Well, that's all the time we have for this current events section. Up next, our main segment, a discussion with Ralph Keller about the rise of the far right in the European Union. Today, we're glad to have on Radio Free Humanity, Ralph Keller. He's a Marxist humanist based in Britain, and he is the author of a piece called The Rise of the Far Right in Germany, which you can find on With Sober Senses, the online publication of Marxist Humanist Initiative, and we'll link to that in the description of the podcast. So obviously, the rise of the right all over the world is a big concern now, but Ralph, how did you get interested in you know this topic of researching the rise of the extreme right, specifically in the European Union? One of the reasons is it's because Nazi Germany plunged the world into the worst war in history. And uh, we've also seen the barbarism that the Nazis unleashed aside from the war. Uh, that's one of the main reasons. And the other reason is that I'm trying to understand the world we live in. So and given the fascist history of Europe, Germany in particular, the extreme right has been on the rise again. The, the fascist ideas and the extreme uh, right ideas, they have been dormant. They've, they've laid dormant in society. And we've seen a resurgence of this after the German unification. And since then, the extreme right 
various parties, not just parties, but also the groups, uh, other groups, they have clearly been on the rise and uh, they've been gathering momentum. So I'm trying to understand all this because the European Union was hailed as a project that benefits everybody. But clearly, this doesn't seem to be the case, uh, given Britain's recent departure and given the anti-EU tendencies and sentiments within uh, individual member states. So this this even got to a point, this this nationalism and the the anti-EU sentiment uh, went as far as uh, neo-fascists, they ostentatiously march over an EU flag, which they put on the street. It, it was like a fascist group uh, marching in Dresden. So in, in my opinion, social conflict couldn't be any more apparent or any more glaring at this point in history. I find this really shocking because to me, this seems like a new quality of the anti-EU sentiment that they do this so openly. And it's not just that they trample over it, they march in formation. Well, hi, Ralph. This is Andrew. So, you know, you've been concerned about the resurgence of the extreme right and you decided to investigate some aspects of, of this problem. Uh, in a nutshell, what, what have you learned? I've learned, and this was really scary, that ever since extreme right ideas have appeared on the scene in the late 19th century, these ideas have never gone away, really. One would have thought that after World War II, that it, these things would have died out, these thoughts and, and tendencies, but they really haven't. And uh, over a long period of time, and uh, even with the with the European Union, that whose greatest achievement, in my opinion, is to prevent wars between the member states, we have the extreme right as strong as ever since the end of the uh, of World War Two. And these parties are now common in parliaments of member states, and they also have established themselves in the EU Parliament. That's what I learned. So there's this tendency; these ideas never going away, and now we have this strong resurgence. Can you quantify that, the extent of this resurgence? I have a longer version of this article. What we have in WSS is the part of the article that specifically focuses on Germany. The full version of the article does contain a table that shows how many votes in the last national elections were won by the extreme right parties. Now, this table isn't statistically significant, but it is very indicative nevertheless. And what this table shows is that extreme right parties, not just ideas, but parties, are now a common occurrence across the EU. And these parties, it looks like they are there to stay. And what is really uh, worrying is that some of them have grown so strong that they might even take positions or posts in, in, in national governments after the next national elections. This is the extent to which the ext- extreme right has been rising in the EU. Aren't extreme right parties already in power in the EU? I mean, I'm thinking of like Poland or Hungary. Like, how do you define the term extreme right? So far, there's no national government in the EU that has an extreme right party in power. Now, there are moderately conservative parties that have taken up extreme right positions. And this is the this is the crucial point. Um, the influence that these extreme right parties have, they, they don't have to be in, in, in government and they don't even have to be in national parliaments for their extreme 
right ideas to have an impact. And the reason for that is the allegedly moderately conservative parties, they, and this is a trend I've, I've seen across the EU, not just in individual states like Germany or Poland or yeah, maybe the UK, but across the EU, that the allegedly cons moderately conservative parties, they take up extreme right positions. So these positions and ideas become mainstream. And that means you don't need to have these parties in parliament or even in government for their toxic stuff to be represented. Right, so this goes back to exactly what one means by the extreme right. So I think you're, you've said that the, the government in, in Poland is not what you would consider extreme right. What about Hungary? You could say that the government led by Orban is on the extreme right of the spectrum. If you look at the statutes of that party, I would say that even the political scientists, they are divided as to whether Orban is classed as something that we would call extreme right or whether he still is on the moderate end of the spectrum. But the matter of the fact is not how they define themselves in, in their statutes. What, what really matters here is is what sort of ideas they represent. And since you mentioned Orban, Orban Andrew, uh, he has recently introduced a media watchdog. Now, the idea behind that was this is an organization that monitors the conduct of the media in Hungary. And herein lies the problem. Critics have said that the, uh, the sole purpose of that media watchdog is to discipline the media to prevent critical news reports and critical analysis and ideas that are critical to Orban's government. That's the sole purpose of, of this watchdog. Now, if that is not extreme right in terms of the idea, okay, I don't know. So you're saying, I think this is very important, is you can gather statistics about political parties, you know, how many members they have, how many seats they have in this parliament, that parliament, the, the European parliament, but the spread of this toxic ideology is not limited to party formations, and what we really should be looking at is how influential they are, either directly or indirectly through their influence on more mainstream uh, political formations. Being in the United States, I mean, to me, this is a really big deal because we've seen this in a big way uh, in the United States. In 1968, which I remember, I'm that old, uh, in 1968, you had George Wallace, racist, authoritarian governor of Alabama, and he was just, you know, spewing this law and order crap, okay? Really racist, really inciting violence and, and, and everything. And Richard Nixon said, this is my road to victory in the election. I'm going to adopt this law and order stance, rhetoric, and so forth. Uh, and he did, and, you know, the rest is, is history. Really, from around that time, after the, the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, and all kinds of things happening to, to give black people in this country, you know, some franchise and, and some rights in, in, in the mid-60s, the, the Republican Party, you know, totally changed in character, where, wherein, and it's increasingly so over the last half century, it, it became, or it's becoming more and more this kind of racist and authoritarian, really, party. So, you know, we're not strangers to it. We understand that, that, that general issue. You can't just focus on, on the seats in Parliament or how many members somebody has, but you, we got to look at the degree of their influence.
influence. I don't know if that's something that could be quantified, but I'm interested in other examples you may have of how uh, extreme right ideas have permeate, you know, have, have spread out within European politics. Are, are there other examples of mainstream political groups uh, adopting or appropriating their ideas? One example that comes to mind right now is the ruling party in, in Poland. They have introduced new abortion laws, effectively outlawing abortion. And that was a, a hard-won freedom for many, many women. Even under, under the Stalinist, the, the Stalinist government at the time, even they granted abortion rights. And going back on this, making abortion illegal is a clear step back. This is an agenda that conservative religious groups have been pushing and pursuing. Another example from Poland is in that uh, the European Commission has tried to penalize Poland's government because they tried to stock the Supreme Court in their favor so that Supreme Court rulings go in favor of, of the Peace Party, the ruling party. So this is curbing democracy at the highest level. Another example comes to mind is yeah, Brexit. I'm not saying that the entire Brexit agenda or movement was racist or nationalist or extreme right, but part of the Brexit agenda was driven by, by a racist agenda, and in particular uh, advanced by UKIP, the United Kingdom uh, Independence Party. And their argument has been that Britain needs to take control of uncontrolled immigration. So as long as Britain is in the EU, immigration will be uncontrolled and Britain will be swamped by whoever. Yeah. That, that was UKIP's main argument. You know, to your last example there, the, the Brexit example, I feel like just the, the Brexit debate itself provided this opportunity for the far right to appear relevant, to appear like they had a legitimate point of view that was part of like the normal discourse. Um, you know, so it was, it was like a big opportunity for them. Um, what, um, whether or not you characterize the whole Brexit um, debate as, you know, a, a far right issue. Um, and I, there are all, all these other issues, you know, like the issues of like, like migration in the EU as well, that they provide this opening for the far right to, to act like they have this um, a point of view that is like acceptable and like a normal position to consider. UKIP is not currently in, in the UK Parliament, uh, it's not in the Westminster Parliament. However, the idea of closing the borders to immigration clearly comes from them, you know. So the, mm -hmm. this is pretty much on the agenda by saying uh, the EU wants free movement of labor, Britain saying no. So for Britain, free movement of labor is something they'll never agree to. I have another very illustrative example from Germany. So last year in autumn, there were state elections in Turinia and uh, the left party won the majority of votes. But a coalition of votes from the MPs of the left party, the Social Democrat Party and the Green Party, they were not enough to say the left prime minister uh, is going to continue as prime minister. And that was because the Christian Democrats, the normal conservative, or moderately conservative party and the AFD in the state parliament, they were together and the, the liberal Democrats as well. And just for those who don't know, the AFD is the alternative for Germany party, which is an extreme right party. 
These three were strong enough to prevent a left prime minister in the state of Turinia. That was the mm -hmm. constellation. What happened was then that for some time, the conservative wing, they managed to get enough votes for a prime minister from uh, liberal Democrats. And there was a public outcry in Germany because the AFD were celebrating themselves as kingmaker. The, the AFD votes, they had enough votes to make this candidate from the liberal Democrats Democrats to make him prime minister. And there was a public outcry in all of Germany with the Christian Democrats national and the liberal Democrats national stepping in saying, look, to that prime minister, you've got to step down. We cannot have a prime minister, not even at state level, who was voted into office by fascists. Yes, this is a harsh term, but members of the AFD in Turinia, the public is allowed to call them fascists, uh, according to uh, a ruling by a court of law. So this was the situation in Germany and this was the uh, the extent of their influence. But here we have an example where they have been exerting their influence in a state mm -hmm. parliament. So what about the infiltration of the far right into policing and the military in the EU? Ooh, that is a, a touchy topic. There have been allegations that this is actually taking place. This is not just rumors, but this is actually happening because the police across the EU, they have these stop and search practices seemingly at random, but it's not at random because they target foreign looking people, African looking or Muslim looking people. Stop and search. Uh, show me this paper. Show me that paper. What are you doing? I'm going to check your uh, rucksack. I'm going to give you a quick frisk stuff like this and since you say uh, police what's been happening in germany lately is that you might have heard this stuff about the national socialist underground the nsu it was a terrorist organization that went around germany shooting people killing people yeah. and now recently politicians in germany left-wing politicians but also center politicians and uh, social democrats they have received threatening emails where these emails may making death threats and they were signed NSU 2.0. So even though the original NSU, two of the three are dead and the third one is in jail, there is a new movement and now calling itself 2.0 and mm -hmm. they, they, they're investigating. They don't know who it is yet, but they're saying that the information about these politicians or who to target, the perpetrators get from police databases and from police uh, computers. So now there's a possibility that the police has been hacked or the other possibility is that the police itself or members of the police individual members of the police are involved in this i mean wasn't there just the other week uh, headlines about some sort of fascist terrorist cells that had infiltrated the german military and they'd found you know stashes of explosives and theorized that maybe this sort of conspiratorial group had infiltrated like deeply into different layers of the German military. Yes. What uh, the news yesterday was that uh, in the US you have SEAL Team 6, yeah, the absolute specialists. And in, in Germany we have an equivalent, which is the Command of Special Forces, it's called. And one unit is now being disbanded because of their racist and chauvinist conduct and leadership. Yeah? Right. I mean, as far as the far right has been around, this has been part of their strategy to infiltrate militaries and police forces. You know, of course, another part of the strategy is like 
uh, you know, extrajudicial paramilitary violence by mobs and other sorts of groups that are out, that are organized outside of the <clears throat> normal uh, legal process, but they also have this philosophy or strategy of trying to take over and infiltrate uh, police and military organizations. That's right. And some of these uh, cases have really gone, uh, really been in the public domain, not by media reports, but what's happening is that members of the police, they go on the marches on the racist and right wing marches in Dresden, the Pegida mm. movement, uh, there's members of the police demonstrating there, you know? Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, in the United States, we've come to like, just know, and it's, it's prevalent that people in the police and the military are often, you know, disproportionately in the far right and far right people have careers that way. Would you say that there's that general tendency in, in, in some or, or many EU countries as well, where, you know, there's this kind of uh, a right, a far right tilt to at least portions of the cops in the military? It's imaginable, although right now I'm only aware of the situation in Germany. What what we, can we say about this is that many progressive forces or left forces in Germany have been calling for an independent investigation into police conduct because there's so many complaints against the police. Many of them are being investigated by the state prosecutors who then very often drop the case against individual police or go with the lowest punishment or charge that the law permits. And so some left-wing forces and progressive forces have been calling for an independent investigation at the national level. But the Secretary of the Interior said in public, and I quote, there is no need for such an investigation. So he effectively tried to drop the whole matter at the highest level. Yeah, I'm, I'm very interested in the case of Germany for obvious reasons. I mean, first of all, what you're telling me about Turinia is, it's absolutely shocking. The, the, the first time is tragedy, the second time looks like it could be tragedy. I mean, you know, the, the idea of the, of, of, of the Christian Democrats collaborating with the AFD, haven't they learned from the history of the 1930s? That, that's my one question. My other question is this, after the war, West Germany, the Federal Republic, seem to have engaged in a concerted, long-running, and successful campaign to quash neo-Nazism, right? There, there were laws banning, uh, I guess what we would call hate speech, I don't know what it was called there, and they, they seem to have done a very good job until a certain point. So how come they couldn't like fully stamp out the far right, and what kinds of things caused it to return? So in terms of the first question, have the Christian Democrats and the Christian Socialists not learned from the 1930s? It's difficult to answer that question, but what seems to be apparent here is the reason why moderately conservative parties take on extreme right ideas is because they want to stay in for them to have a bum on a seat, which means uh, to be in charge somewhere, to be in government somewhere, for some of them, for some of their party members, it is more important than preventing the rise of the AFD. So and if you then want to go back to the original question, they don't seem to have learned much or they have forgotten. I, I, I don't know. Right, and I'm not talking about in terms of altruism or, 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 or gigantic goals. I'm talking about in terms of self-preservation. You know, it didn't work out real well for them in the 1930s. 
So they, in, in that sense, one could say they haven't learned much. So in, in Saxony in particular, we had the uh, conservative government since unification and they, yeah, they always belittled the problem. They're saying, oh, it's not, it's not a big deal. If we ignore it, it'll go away. But no, it didn't. So now they have Pegida yeah. in Dresden. And in terms of the second question, why did they not manage to weed this stuff out? Andrew, I'm not sure if you are aware of this, but Gestapo agents became part of the, or were taken over by the newly formed Bundesnachrichtendienst, that's the Federal Intelligence Service. So if you have been a Gestapo agent, chances were good, you've become a BND agent. We also had Gauleiter, that's the equivalent of today we have the states, and if, if you were the head of the state during the Nazi era, era you were called Gau, but Gau was the, is the equivalent of the, the state, and Leiter means a, a manager or boss, or you know, it's the head, the leader. Some of them have been part of state governments in West Germany after the war. And this is what the East German communists tirelessly tried to point out and fight, that the weeding out of national socialism in West Germany was only done half-heartedly. Hmm? And this was also done with the, the knowledge, obviously, of the United States and, and, and with their blessing. Right. So on the one hand, there, there's this public campaign where, you know, you can't openly promote fascist ideas. On the other hand, you've got Hitler's agents in not only the government, but in, you know, the most sensitive security forces. Yes. The, there was this practice that United States occupation forces were issuing what was called denazification certificates. So if you had one of those, you had no Nazi history and you could restart your life. And what the Americans were interested in at the time was fighting the Russian imperialism, keeping it under wraps or keeping it in check. And that's why they were recruiting the, the old Nazis to help the U.S. fight Stalinism. Right. So the public expression of these ideologies was kind of like tamped down, was underground for a long time. Am I correct about that? Underground, I would say, yes. Yeah. So how did, from an ideological standpoint, it manage to perpetuate itself for, what, decades, yet still maintain this underground existence? This is a little bit of a mystery for me. Uh, I haven't fully understood this. One idea was maybe we have a revenge war against the Soviet, get the Eastern territories back, even though it was kept under rocks uh, and kept underground, but these ideas perpetuated. Other ideas in, in East Germany were perpetuated. I don't know what, what kept it there. Maybe the underground resistance against Stalinism and then after the unification these bad attitudes against uh, migrants uh, and stuff like this. I'm, I'm not 100% sure. I want to investigate this very issue uh, further. But for, for, from what you know, I mean, I, I, I appreciate that. Saying you don't know, I really appreciate when people say that because that's a lot better than people just making up stuff. But, I mean, perhaps the public resurgence of this is not closely connected to the preservation of it underground throughout decades. I mean, maybe potentially that's like a new phenomenon whereby there's some relaxation in, you know, the, the anti-fascist codes and it, it just, from really, from not much history, not much background, maybe it just it just began to flourish at that point in a public way with, without, you know, being directed by these, these, these secret forces and so, such.
Yeah, this is, of course, another possibility that there is no direct connection between these old ideas uh, staying alive underground and the new resurgence. Maybe this is a new phenomenon. One argument that could be made, although I'm not very keen on it, because uh, this is what the left often argues, yeah, is the economic situation in East Germany. The East Germans have been hard done by, by the unification, financially very poorly off, job-wise, high unemployment and this is sort of a hotbed for these extreme right ideas. I'm not so keen on this argument because there are areas in East Germany that are economically really really badly off and they mostly vote for the Linke. The Linke is the left party. The left party, yes. So there is something here that needs to be investigated. One aspect I explore in the article is that uh, there's just poor attitudes, irrespective of the economic situation. Many people have a poor attitude towards social change. That means you see the Burka a lot in the German cities. And uh, many people see this as a threat to their Christian way of life. They just don't like the looks of the Burka. That's what it comes down to. Or then there's these bad attitudes that are fueled by the social media toxic guff that's being spread around is there were pictures that the refugees when they when they first came oh they're wearing adidas designer wear or puma man that must mean they get so much more state aid in the uh, they get so much more money to spend from the state than our unemployed people get uh, those kind of things i think play a very strong part in in the rise of the extreme right after the unification although i when i investigated these claims and there's numbers in i've got figures in in, in the article that these immigrants, what they receive in income support is, is, is less than what a German national would receive in income support. So what we see is the social media unchecked facts and a friend says something, it must be true, don't need to check it. That sort of stuff also fuels the resurgence of toxic ideas now. There's not just the social media that fuels this toxic stuff. It's also prominent writers. There is a guy in France called Renaud Camus. Uh, he's written a book. It's called Le Grand Replacement, which means in English is the great replacement. And there he puts out the argument, uh, in, in inverted commas, that the native French people are being systematically replaced or displaced by North Africans and by Muslims. Now, and this is, is really an example of a bad attitude towards social change. And when people read this, and, and this stuff is in the public domain, what we see is a normalization of uh, extreme right ideas. Well, they're there. You can't uh, ban them. Uh, you can't outlaw them. So they are the norm. And then what also happens is that high-ranking state officials, they're saying that, oh, we need to be more open and more tolerant towards these ideas. Uh, when you have that, uh, then there's nothing or not not very much you can do stopping these ideas become the norm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, the replacement theory is uh, not confined to France. Uh, it's, it's made it in a big way into the United States. Charlottesville, 
um, where the, the neo-Nazi murdered Heather Heyer, and then uh, Trump says, you know, good people on both sides. What were those people chanting when they were holding up tiki torches, you know, lit tiki torches? You will not replace us. Jews will not replace us. That word replace was not accidental, you know? There's a concerted international whatever about the replacement of white Christian society by the other. That, 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 is a, that is a lot of influence. I don't know how deeply it penetrates, like over here. You know, I'm sure people like Steve Bannon are doing everything to, to knit together international ties uh, in regard to that. This is something that EU migrants, uh, I've spoken to some of them from, from Romania or Bulgaria, spoken to some of them in Britain, and they perpetuate the same idea, although they don't call it the Great Replacement. They are saying, oh, we these Muslims, it's a big problem. They are not Christians. And this is a big threat. You know, this is how the, the, even the, the EU migrants argue, just because they are Christians. Huh? Well, mm. some migrants, not, of course, not all of them. Yeah. yeah. I hope you all are enjoying this conversation with Ralph Keller about the far right in Europe. In just a few moments, we'll continue the interview. But first, a few words from Andrew Clard of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Hello, this is Anne Jacquard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marx's philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Today's political, economic, and environmental crises present a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses, which demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not socialism. MHI's ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. We intend to practice, as well as espouse, a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice. You know, just thinking back to my own knowledge about the literature on the rise of fascism in uh, 20th century Europe, um, you know, I'm not an expert on the topic, but from what I've read, um, you know, this is like the big question people are always trying to answer, like, 
how the fascists rose to power and captured the allegiance and loyalty of pre-existing parties and institutions and masses of people. Um, obviously, you know, it's it's a it was a contingent thing. It wasn't like pre predetermined. Um, and there was but there were real confluence of factors that led to um, the success of fascism. And we've touched on some of these, I think, already. I mean, for one, well, we were talking about the alliance of the Christian Dems with the AFD. Um, that's there's like the classic classic example of people thinking that they can use the far right for their own advantage, um, and not realizing that you know, that it doesn't work that way with the far right. You're you're the one who ends up getting used. I mean, we've seen this over and over again with Trump's um, rise to power in the U.S. and his like destruction of institutions in the U.S. That all along there are all these elements within the conservative coalition that think that they're going to use Trump to further their own ends. And they don't realize that they're the ones who are being used as the system gets transformed into this authoritarian state. And people like Chris Cutrone. Yeah, exactly. The, even leftists like Chris Cutrone who think that they can like use the Trumpist moment to their advantage and then realize uh, down the road that they've sold their soul to the devil. Um, you know, and, but this is like the classic dynamic where people think that these fascist movements are a tool to be controlled. Uh, but, you know, fascist movements and parties, they don't function like other parties or movements. They're not there to function as part of a movement within democratic society. They're there to take over and destroy that society. And they have a certain um, dynamism, like a rabid dynamism, and that when it achieves a critical mass, it's very hard to stop. And you'd think that in Germany, of all places, people would have learned that lesson, but apparently not. I think one encouraging sign that the lesson has been learned, at least for the time being, is when the national parties force the uh, the state parties in Turinia to overthrow the first election result, the first election of the of the prime minister. Not not the state election, but the voting of the prime minister. So they were forced by the national parties to do the the election again, and in the end, it was the the left the candidate from the left became a state prime minister. So it's at some level, there is still social memory to, to say, okay, we got to put some stop to this. Yeah? Mm -hmm. But of course, it's difficult to put a stop to this in the social media or right. in street protests. You know, you know, another thing gets brought up in the history of 20th century fascism is just um, the fact that a lot of these uh, fascist ideas aren't completely new. They're new versions or extreme versions of pre-existing ideas that already exist in different layers of society from, you know, in like fascist Germany, right? You were drawing on like all sorts of conservative ideas within the Christian and Protestant religions, within like the military and history of the militarism within the middle classes, you know, all sorts of different layers of society had had different conservative and reactionary beliefs you know anti-semitism was widespread i mean it wasn't like people weren't talking about concentration camps and mass killings but uh, anti-semitic beliefs were, were rather common um, authoritarian tendencies were rather common so um it, it, it's not that hard to believe that people could move from those traditional beliefs to more fascist positions without realizing that they had crossed the threshold or without grasping the significance of this fascist dynamic um and 
obviously in the same thing is true in U.S. society, right? I mean, we have a long history in the U.S. of uh, very reactionary, uh, authoritarian, racist, uh, patriarchal, um, you know, deeply reactionary ideas and all different coming from all different sorts of corners from, you know, the military to traditional conservatism to religion. Um, so it's not that hard to believe that given certain social conditions, you know, the, the fire could be lit and they could sort of morph into real fascism. I, I've been thinking about this. There's a tendency to not recognize where extreme ideas, nationalism, racism lead to mm -hmm. uh, when they unfold. But we have, we know from history where things lead to. And therefore, yes, it is very difficult to understand why people in general are not resisting these ideas and trends more. Why the, the extreme right has been rising, given the history. At the moment, I don't understand this. Well, I mean, I, I, I don't know that I understand it either, but part of it, part of it is kind of classic liberal ideology. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. You know, let people say whatever they want and, you know, debate whether the Holocaust took place and debate whether black people are genetically inferior and debate whether, you know, Muslims should be crushed. That That's all fine and good, according to those people. I'm not saying it. But we draw a line at violence. That's, that's, the, that's the ideology, is that there's one thing which is speech and another thing which is action. So, I mean, how do you respond to that? It might be well and good for the people who say that not to resort to violence, but there's always some people who will use violence on the back of those ideas. And in my opinion, you cannot just put a lid on the violence while you do not tackle the underlying uh, problem, the underlying ideas. If you want to weed out the violence, you as long as people have this toxic stuff in their head, there will be somebody who is willing to act on it. And there's plenty of examples uh, that we have in the EU. Uh, there was a, a few years ago, there was a Breivik in, in Norway who went on a killing spree. Then uh, currently we have in Germany, we have a guy who uh, was it last year, tried to massacre Jewish people or was a Muslim people in, in, in the mosque in the city of Halle. But uh, he couldn't get into the mosque so uh, out of frustration he started to shoot people in the street the point i'm trying to make is you cannot weed out the violence without having weeded out the the underlying ideas that that's my that's my opinion it also seems like it's a different issue if the underlying ideas of the extreme right are to destroy liberal democracy itself so they aren't entering into this like realm of discourse and debate and free expression in order to further those institutions. Um, they're there to destroy that entire realm of debate and free expression of ideas. So you can't treat them like equal players in the process. There, there's an inherent violence in, in the ideas themselves. So I would say this is a strong way of putting it. Because the ideas are inherently violent, there will always be somebody who will act out this violence. And maybe there is people say, oh yeah, we have these ideas, but we'll never resort to violence. Maybe not themselves, but they're happy for others to act out the violence. Right. To my mind, the problem that a lot of people have, why they can't oppose this, is they have 
really incorrect understandings of things like speech, you know, versus actions. And what they don't understand is that not every vocalization is speech, you know. So I, I really don't even like the term hate speech because it's not speech. It's a vocalization. But as Brendan was saying, and this is the key point, its purpose and its function is not to speak in a dialogue. Its purpose is to get people, you know, enraged, you know, just bent out of shape, riled up, and to take action and to, to you know, perform violence. So what is happening is, I, I think Brennan got it exactly right, the far right and, and people like Trump, they are exploiting ideological gaps and defects in the, the liberal self-understanding of communicative society and, and, you know, liberal democracy and so forth. They're not part of it. They're not engaging in it when they so-called speak any more than a dog is when a dog barks. That's not speaking either, right? So I'm saying things that are obvious, but these these obvious things that I'm saying go against the entire ideology that I w- was inculcated in me in my youth, you know, and that I've heard again and again and again. And it's just people who believe in free speech seem to be unable to get through their heads that the other side, although it's vocalizing, is not engaged in speech. And what 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 they need is that they need some empirical tests, I think, and they don't have it, you know. So all they can say is, well, that speech is beyond the pale, and the speech is okay, and it's all it's all a complete mess. They really need to think through the matter from from the ground up, and to to be able to distinguish between a vocalization. And, and speech proper and maybe then that will help people to be able to see when they're being played i don't know there's that famous quote by goebbels the nazi propaganda minister that i've i know i've mentioned before um and i just looked it up so i could read it again he says uh we enter parliament in order to supply ourselves in the arsenal of democracy with its own weapons we do not come as friends, nor even as neutrals. We come as enemies. As the wolf bursts into the flock, so we come. And I just think it's such a great encapsulation of the dangers uh, that Andrew was just talking about, the dangers of treating uh, the far right as equals in the democratic process. Because, you know, Goebbels is saying right here, you hear it straight from the, the wolf's mouth. He's saying, if you treat us like sheep, we will kill you. You know, we are not... We, we are here amongst you, but we are not one of you. Yeah. First of all, like you said, I mean, Goebbels said it. I mean, they, they, they made no bones about it. It's very clear, you know, and, and there are people doing so right, right, right now. But th- there are clear, uh, simple empirical tests that, that, that can be used to distinguish, you know, genuine speech from, from you know, incitement to violence and just uh, attacking people by spewing hatred. I mean, one, one thing, very simple test, and I, I use this, I apply it to the, the Marxian economy is under what conditions would you be willing to retract what you're saying, you know, to, to acknowledge that it is incorrect? And if somebody cannot specify that, then you know that they are not engaged in a good faith dialogue that's meant to, to get at the truth. Okay. So I mean, that's just one example. There's other ways of, of judging what, what is genuinely speech from, from what is an attack through vocalization or an incitement uh, to, to, to violence. 
Well, pivoting here a little bit, Ralph, what do you see as the potential for the growth of the extreme right in Europe? It's difficult to say how far it will go. Well, looking at history, it is very worrying because if the extreme right continues to grow, there will be almost certainly a situation where they seize power. But, well, right now, during the next elections, the national elections, we will get a bigger picture. But it's come to a point where Green Party and like the equivalent of the British Tories and the US Republicans form coalitions to keep the right out. So at some level, there is still some check and balance there or some checks and balances there to keep the, the right out. But if this continues, then their voters will be really fed up and they will even gain more voters because the, the people that not do not currently vote for the extreme right uh, might get fed up up with these uh, with these games and deals at the very top and may start voting for the extreme right. So in Austria, we had this constellation, the extreme right, uh, the Austrian Freedom Party was ready to have representatives in government right. uh, after the latest elections. And uh, in Germany, uh, I don't know how far this will go. There is still potential in terms of voters. But for now, I think the conservative or the moderately conservative parties, they, they have at least, I think, to some extent, have stopped taking on these ideas because they realized that they can't keep doing this because yeah, they've they, they seen the issue. Mm. Uh, they've seen the issue that, that they helped the AFD to grow, at least in Germany. Well, Ralph, this has been a great interview. I think we're about out of time, but thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you, gentlemen, for having me. Yes, thank you. It's been, it's been enlightening. It's been thought-provoking. Again, if you want to check out Ralph's paper yourself, it's called The Rise of the Extreme Right in Germany, and you can find it on marxisthumanistinitiative.org. You can also find lots of other great literature there on the website, as well as more episodes of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, there are lots of things you can do to show your appreciation. You can subscribe to the podcast. You can share it on social media, send it to your friends and enemies. Most of all, we'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a comment. Thank you.